Hi, I'm Hugh Richards and the host of our podcast series, What's the Deal? In each episode, I'll be joined by global business and industry leaders to look at the trends driving deal-making today and how they are transforming businesses and industries around the world. I'm going to start with the most used expression of the past two years and say that there's absolutely no doubt we continue to live in unprecedented times as successive global events continue to create meaningful uncertainty and market volatility. So it's certainly a unique time to be a corporate decision maker as well as an individual and a consumer. But as it's often said, while history doesn't repeat itself, but it does often rhyme, we wanted to use this episode to level set where we are today and how corporates are addressing the unique opportunities and challenges presented by this environment. To help us chart out this path, I'm here with Rama varian Kabul, who's a proud lifer at J.P. Morgan Chase. Rama's been with us for nearly 20 years, having joined the firm after earning his graduate degree in financial engineering from NYU. Rama wears a couple of important but different hats here at J.P. Morgan. He is the Global Head of Corporate Finance Advisory, also known as the CFA Group, the Global Head of the Center for Carbon Transition, and he also serves on the Investment Bank's Reputational Risk Committee. Welcome, Rama. Thank you, Hugh. Thanks for having me. Great. Before we dive into some Q&A around the session here, tell us just a little bit about the mandate of the CFA Group here at J.P. Morgan and also the Center for Carbon Transition. So as you said, Different groups, but uh, quite related in my mind. So the CFA group or the Corporate Finance Advisory Group, it's a group within the investment bank, a global footprint, and the mandate is to work with our corporate clients of the investment bank or the commercial bank on traditional corporate finance-related issues or structured finance-related issues. So talking to a business about how should they finance the operating assets they own, how should they create shareholder value through the use of financial policy. That's kind of big picture, the mandate of the CFA team. And then the CCT team, the Center for Carbon Transition, that mandate is, I think of it as twofold. One is to design and implement the firm's sustainability-related commitments as it pertains to our client activities. And then to engage with these clients of the bank to help them think through their own sustainability strategy. Because our sustainability strategy, our carbon footprint, our ESG profile, et cetera, is really a reflection of our clients' sustainability profile and carbon footprint and ESG credentials. So those are fairly closely linked. The one way I think about it is CCT in many ways is CFA for ESG. Lots of acronyms there. We love our acronyms here at JP Morgan, but I also think that's very clear. And I think one of the things we've explored, and I'd just like to ask you about this in our couple of previous podcasts, is how the ESG and the CCT agenda has become quite integrated into the corporate finance discussion at these corporations. Is that something that you're seeing from your seat? Absolutely. That I would say is the origin story for CCT and why we decided to create CCT in parallel to CFA. Because over the last, I would say, four or five years, it was beginning to really come up as a corporate finance topic. This notion of how do you think about sustainability strategy as it pertains to business strategy, regardless of what economic sector you're operating in? How do you think about capital flows in the markets, which increasingly are going towards more ESG-oriented funds? How do you think about cost of capital differentials for green assets versus non-green assets? we actually started thinking about these as corporate finance questions and made a lot of sense for us to put CCT right next to CFA because that's how the board, the CEO, the CFO, the head of corp dev at our clients were grappling with these issues and trying to figure out how to make sense of it along with running their own business. So it made sense for us to kind of, again, get organized the way we are, I think. 
Great. I think that's a terrific overview. And, I, and hopefully for our listeners, that sets some great context for why we really wanted you to be a part of this conversation, because we've spent a lot of time thinking about sustainability within the corporate finance context. But now we want to turn to a little bit more to the CFA part of your role, which is how these global events are impacting the corporate finance decision-making. And I think, as we all said, this is a complicated topic. It's a broad-ranging topic. And we really wanted to focus it in on three sort of core questions to help our listeners unpick through this. First of all, the geopolitical background. The second and third topic are very interrelated. Second, the inflation rate environment that's occupying a lot of the headlines today. But also, again, as clearly and closely related to that, how are we thinking about the Fed and the impact on corporate decision-making? So look, let's jump in with the first of those, and let's talk about the constantly evolving geopolitical crisis. One of the benefits that being around like you and me for the past 20 years is this isn't the first geopolitical crisis that we've seen of this kind. So help us think through kind of what we're looking at today, and how does that translate through to a corporate finance advisory messaging that we want to convey to clients? First and foremost, unfortunately, we have been around long enough to see other crises, and these are all obviously humanitarian crises. We spend a lot of time thinking about the economic or markets ramifications of these crises, but that doesn't take away from the fact that lots of people around the world are clearly suffering because of what's going on. So this particular crisis, let's start with what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. A lot of people instinctively are comparing it to what happened in the 1970s for a couple of different reasons, because this conflict is sitting on top of market environment, which growth was high, inflation was high to begin with. And then we had this kind of orthogonal shock, if you will, to the system, and very much like what happened in the, the 73 um, Middle East conflict. Interestingly, the US GDP, if you look back, was about 5% at that time, leading up to that particular conflict. Inflation rate in the US was kind of high single digits around that time. Uh, actually, it became high single digits very quickly. It was a little lower than that. So not too different than how the the macro data, at least in the U.S., looked right before this crisis. Of course, the other big nexus is oil, right? OPEC at that point produced about 50% of global oil supply. And then the embargo right after the conflict created a fairly massive supply side shot, which led to then U.S. GDP going negative within nine months, inflation hitting double digits within nine months, et cetera, right? So a lot of parallels, if you will, in the context between now and then with the importance of not just oil, but I would say overall commodities. And we entered this conflict in a very similar position that US GDP looked pretty strong. Inflation was already bubbling up because we were still fighting through the stimulus in the system post-COVID. And you're seeing that the data is beginning to change. You're beginning to see that the environment in the US and I would say most of the developed world is beginning to soften. And the big question everyone is asking clearly is, can we navigate through all of this and have a soft landing, i.e. avoid a recession or not? And I, for one, am unfortunately in the camp that that's going to be quite difficult for us to get out of all of this and have a soft landing. I suspect that we will, within the next 12, 18 months, end up with some form of a recession. Hopefully, it's short-lived. So that's my view. But I will say I'm not in the business of predicting economic <laughs> outcomes, more in the business of laying out context for our clients and talking to them about how they could position themselves, given uncertainty. There is going to be uncertainty in the markets for a period of time. So how a, you know, a company, whether they're a tech company or an energy company or a logistics company, how they position themselves to make sure that they survive, if not thrive, that's where we spend a lot of time. 
No, that's interesting. Do you think it's fair to say that because of the instinctive comparison to the 70s, which is why we're hearing a lot of the phrase stagflation picking up in the public press, is that because of that clear comparison or the analogy that you just drew to the 70s? I think so, right? Clearly, stagflation is something that's come up a lot in the last few months in discussions. The last prints have been in the high single digits, CPI prints. But if you look forward, the market is pricing in inflation in the, let's say, high 2-3% range, if you look long-term, which I think is obviously still much higher than what we have seen, at least in the US or in the developed world for a period of time, right? But it's not stagflation level inflation. This is not hyperinflation by any means. Six months back, I thought even to see inflation where we see today was unthinkable, candidly. There are a lot of secular forces, I thought, which would keep inflation low and demographic trends, globalization, technology, which is inherently deflationary, right? So I thought those trends would keep inflation low. And you've seen, again, if you zoom out enough, you look at what's happened to rates in the US, right? They Post-World War II, they went up for about 20, 25 years, and then they've been going down secularly, right? There has been some volatility around it. There's been a secular trend of low rates, low, rate, low inflation over the last few decades, right? I thought that would continue with some volatility. And initially, I was in the camp that this is some volatility around that secular trend. But my current thinking is maybe there have been some structural shifts. Maybe we will end up on the other side of this with structurally higher inflation. Again, by no means to the level of hyperinflation, but the trend of globalization seems to be taking a little bit of a pause, right? It was not just because of Russia-Ukraine, but other kind of geopolitical tensions that have been bubbling have led a lot of our clients to think about things like, how do I make sure that my supply chain is more resilient? Right? If the buzzword for the last couple of decades was efficiency, how do I make my operations as efficient as possible, which might mean really fanning out across the globe, finding the cheapest places to put different parts of the organization. I think we are seeing an unwind of that. And that will actually be a structural change to inflation if everybody wants to kind of do more vertical integration, kind of onshore more operations and jobs within their own home countries. Things like that could actually lead to inflation being structurally higher than what we have seen in the past. But again, I don't think stagflation is where we end up. No, and I think also what you just referenced at the end there, and I'll bring it back to some of the comments that you made at the beginning in the discussion about the instinctive comparison versus the 70s, is it just brings home once again just how integrated all these systems are of corporate finance advisory. Thanks a lot, Rama, for this engaging dialogue. And that concludes part one of our conversation. Please join us for part two. This material was prepared by the investment banking group of J.P. Morgan Securities, LLC, and not the firm's research department. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument.